0: What I'm going to do is uh, summarize the cases and their principal arguments on both sides, uh, and then um, make a few observations, and then uh, uh, Professor Rutherglen will uh, uh, correct me when I'm wrong. Everything I know about employment discrimination I learned from teaching out of his book and visiting his office. So uh, I'll do my best, and then he can uh, uh, set the record straight. Okay, uh, there are three cases before the Supreme Court. They're actually being argued uh, tomorrow, I believe. Uh, So uh, this is very timely. Two of them have to do with whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, which prohibits discrimination uh, because of an individual's sex, uh, includes in that phrase discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, and then the third case uh, asks a similar question, but it's whether an ind- discrimination on the, the basis of sex includes uh, gender identity. So I'll first describe the two sexual orientation cases, and then, uh, and then describe the transgender case. Uh, those two cases are uh, Bostock versus Clayton County out of the 11th Circuit, and uh, uh, Altitude Express versus Zarda out of the 2nd Circuit. Uh, In Bostock, the employee uh, was a um, child welfare services coordinator working for the county juvenile court. I believe he also played on a um, gay softball league. And uh, the allegation is that uh, he was fired because someone who is fairly influential with the court system uh, learned about his sexual orientation and had him terminated. The county said it was for uh, mismanagement of funds, but uh, he alleges it was because of his sexual orientation, and argued that that's also discrimination because of his sex. Uh, The district court in the 11th Circuit dismissed uh, on the ground that he fails to state a claim because uh, Title VII uh, doesn't apply to sexual orientation uh, following a, a prior circuit precedent. Uh, Altitude Express versus Zarda uh, creates a circuit split. Um, it reached the opposite conclusion out of the seventh, seventh circuit. Uh, Zarda was a skydiving instructor for Altitude Express, uh, where he would do something called tandem dives. I haven't done it, but some of my crazy friends have. But where are you, he straps himself essentially to uh, to a customer, and then they jump out of an airplane, uh, and. Uh, uh, he would, on occasion, uh, because of the fairly intimate uh, positions you're in, uh, tell the female customer that he was gay as a way of uh, assuaging their concern that he may uh, find it sexually interesting. What uh, did he
1: tell the male customers? <laughs> no, no, nothing, nothing.
0: <laughs> um, and in one particular case, he I think he said something, and I have a, an ex-husband to prove it. Um, She then, uh, the customer, told her boyfriend that she thought he had um, touched her in an inappropriate way and that then he said he was gay to kind of disclaim that he was trying to do anything. Um, The boyfriend reported it to the boss, and the boss terminated him. Um, Sadly, he, um, after this case was filed, died in uh, another skydiving um, situation, so uh, it's actually his estate that's continuing with the case. We'll see whether that creates any um, uh, jurisdictional issues. Uh, anyway, the uh, the trial court, uh, I believe, ruled uh, against him, but the sec- Second Circuit uh, ruled in his favor and ruled that um, because of sex does include sexual orientation. So the arguments, um, I'll just kind of combine them. They're fairly similar and overlapping. The employer's arguments are, in both of these cases, are fairly predictable. They rely, uh, in a very general way, on the uh, understanding or intent of Congress that enacted the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, They argue, I think quite accurately, that the Congress in 1964 was not intending to uh, prohibit discrimination on the basis of uh, sexual orientation. Um, Indeed, at that time, uh, every state except for Illinois um, criminally punished um, same sex uh, intimacy. Um, No state uh, protected sexual orientation in their statutes. Uh, Today, 22 states explicitly protect sexual orientation uh, in addition to sex. So again, treating it as, as separate. Um, in 1964, the American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association uh, both deemed uh, homosexuality uh, a mental illness. So uh, the idea that Congress was um, trying to protect um, what was widely perceived as a deviance or mental illness from discrimination is um, implausible. Uh, They also make a kind of related textual argument, which is that the meaning of because of sex um, was understood to just mean discriminating against uh, primarily women. um, But because they use general language, it would presumably apply to to men as well. But it was distinguishing between men uh, or women treating one more favorably than the other. Uh, And they argue that sexual orientation is, is, is a distinct trait. So for example, in uh, either of these cases, uh, they say that uh, um, the employer was perfectly willing to hire men uh, and was perfectly willing to hire women, uh, but uh, not gay men or gay women. uh, So the difference is sexual orientation rather than uh, sex. And then they make a kind of comparative, these are all kind of related of a piece, but a, a comparative argument where they say that um, the difference between how they treat people is basically they treat gay men and gay women the same, straight men and straight women the same. Uh, so it's, again, sexual orientation that's turning it. They say it might be different if, for example, um, the county was willing to hire lesbians but not gay men. That would be sex discrimination. But so long as they're um, distinguishing between men and women who are otherwise similarly situated other than their sexual orientation, it's sexual orientation, not uh, sex. The employees' uh, counterarguments, which have um, failed for many decades but have uh, recently, just in the last couple of years, uh, gotten traction first in the Seventh Circuit and now in the Second Circuit. There's three, uh, associational, second, comparative, and third, sex stereotypes. Again, you'll see that there's a degree of overlap because ultimately the the statutory question is is whether sex played a motivating role in the discrimination. But these are kind of analytical tools or evidentiary tools for, uh, for establishing that claim. I'll start with the associational, even though it's maybe less direct than comparative in part because I think it's the, the longest standing argument. And it draws on uh, race cases like Loving versus Virginia, um, which in 1967, as you know, struck down Virginia and um, 15 other states' bans on interracial marriage. Now, the Commonwealth of Virginia had argued, drawing on earlier Supreme Court precedent, that so long as the races were treated uh, the same, there wasn't race discrimination. They said, because blacks and whites were both prohibited from marrying each other, uh, this didn't constitute race discrimination and therefore didn't have to satisfy the higher level of scrutiny applied to race discrimination. Strict scrutiny uh, for anyone else in the class is uh, what the court applies to uh, um, racial classifications. It's it's virtually invalidates the law uh, almost every time. And the Supreme Court said, no, we do apply strict scrutiny and strike this down because uh, regardless of whether it treats the races the same. On the individual case, it distinguishes between legal and illegal marriages based on the race of the parties. So before quoting them, I'll just kind of paint the picture so they're sort of saying, look, if you have a black and a white woman, or a black and a black woman, fine. Black and a white, or white, a black man and a black woman, that's fine. A white man and a white woman, that's fine. But in the case, you had a white man and a black woman. That's, and that's what's illegal. So when you change the race of one of the parties, it turns it illegal. Uh, to quote the court, the, uh, the Loving Court, the court said, there can be no question but that Virginia's miscegenation statutes rest solely upon distinctions drawn according to race. The statutes proscribe generally accepted conduct if engaged in by members of different races. So it prohibits what's normally accepted, marriage between two consenting adults, um, but it makes it illegal if they're of different races. So courts started to, or advocates started to draw on this first in the same-sex marriage context, um, and it actually prevailed in 1993 in a case uh, in Hawaii, uh, got the Hawaii Supreme Court to recognize same-sex marriage as sex discrimination uh under the the hawaii constitution uh because again it's a similar move that uh, you have what would be a legal marriage becomes illegal if you change the sex of one of the parties only instead of changing it from you know instead of it being same race okay and then different race not okay it's uh different sex okay same sex not okay but it's still uh, changing them So to take the loving quote, but I'm only changing the word sex and changing the word different to same, uh, it would say something like, there can be no question but that um, Virginia's marriage statutes rest solely upon uh, distinction. This would be laws against same-sex marriage. Um, Rest solely upon distinctions drawn according to sex. The statutes proscribe generally accepted conduct if engaged in by members of the same sex. So this is then the, the associational argument. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts actually articulated it quite succinctly just a couple of years ago in the oral arguments in the Obergefell versus Hodges case, which is the case that constitutionalized same-sex marriage. During, during oral argument, he asked, um, do we even have to discuss whether sexual orientation is protected by the Constitution? We've already recognized that sex discrimination is prohibited. And isn't this that case? So this is Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, counsel, I'm not sure if it's necessary to get into a sexual to get into sexual orientation to resolve this case. I mean, if Sue loves jo- Joe and Tom loves Joe, Sue can marry him and Tom can't, and the difference is based upon uh, their different sex. Why isn't that a straightforward question of sexual discrimination? I thought you t- articulated very well and logically. Um, Puzzlingly, though, then he dissented in the same-sex marriage case and didn't mention this point at all. Um, But anyway, so uh, this has taken hold, um, initially, with respect to race in employment discrimination cases. So uniformly, circuits have held that uh, discriminating against an employee because of being in an interracial relationship, uh, whether it's romantic or otherwise, uh, constitutes discrimination against the employee's race, in part because it's the relationship between their race and the person they're in a relationship with. And uh, so the argument goes in the Second Circuit and, and, and the Seventh Circuit that this is similar, that discrimination against uh, a gay employee is discrimination because of sex, because it turns on his association with uh, a person of the same sex. So again, it turns on uh, the relationship between the, the sexes of the two parties. So that's the associational argument. The comparative argument, uh, Well, and let me use a metaphor, uh, hopefully, to help clarify. So the associational is, is kind of comparing the employee with their partner. So if you imagine a boss comes into the office on Valentine's Day, and a male employee is at their desk, and there's a beautiful bouquet of flowers, and on it is a card that says, from your loving husband. And the boss says, What's this about? And then uh, terminates the gay employee. Um, association would be because the objection is male employee with male spouse, the association uh, between them. Comparative is looking more to the employee compared to another employee. So um, they're the. Uh, the metaphor would be, you come in, and there's a male employee and a female employee. They both have flowers on their desks. And they both say, from loving husband, different husbands. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, that's, a different, that's a later case. Um, so, anyhow, uh, so then the idea here is the only difference between these two employees, the gay male gets fired, the, the straight female doesn't, is the only difference is their sex. They both have flowers from their male spouse. Uh, so that's the comparative, and you know, then applied to these cases, the idea would be that um, if the gay male uh, employee had a um, uh, if, if, if another employee had a, a male romantic interest or husband, if it were a female employee, that would have been okay. But because the skydiver's male with an ex-husband, a female with an ex-husband would have been fine. A male with an ex-husband is not okay. Uh, okay. And then um, the third is sex stereotypes. And this draws from a case called Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, uh, which is a 1989 case in which um, Ann Hopkins is denied a promotion to partnership in an accounting firm uh, because she behaved too uh, aggressively. Uh, And the argument was that. a male who behaved the same way that she did would have been uh, promoted, but they objected to a woman acting in the kind of aggressive um, aggressive way uh, and the court held that uh, that constituted sex discrimination um, you know literally because but for her sex, a male behaving the same way she wouldn't have been promoted. but the court talked about sex stereotypes that you can't impose and penalize women for acting uh, in a way that doesn't conform to uh, a sex stereotype. So the argument goes here that, um, in some ways, discriminating against uh, gay males and lesbian employees is because they're not conforming to gender norms. Um, because you know, a real man would be with a woman, uh, and a, a real woman would be with a man, not with someone of the of the same sex. So with the metaphor, be coming in and saying, "A man with a husband and flowers to boot," you know, you're out of here. Um, so uh, those are the kind of the three arguments. And there's some precedents that support them, and some of which I mentioned, the Loving case. A case that I didn't see in the briefs is Bob Jones University. But this is a case from 1983 in which um, uh, Bob Jones University uh, initially uh, was whites only then, uh, but eventually it became where it, it, would, um, it would allow blacks, but it wouldn't allow anyone to be in an interracial relationship. So if a white or a black student were in an interracial relationship, marriage or not, they would be um, expelled. Uh, but So they allowed blacks, they allowed whites, but they couldn't be in relationships with each other. Um, and uh, the IRS said, that's race discrimination and we're revoking your tax-exempt status. It went to the Supreme Court. They argued that they had a free exercise religious right uh, to discriminate, and the court um, ruled that the government's interest in um, eradicating race discrimination was sufficiently compelling to override it, but it, it just stands for an example of where discrimination on the basis of the relationship uh, was viewed as uh, race discrimination. Uh, another case is Meritor versus um, uh, Meritor Savings Bank versus Vinson. This is a the first case to recognize sexual harassment in 1986 as a cause of action. The point just being that. It was a cause of action that initially was described as falling outside the intent of Congress of 1964, uh, that sexual harassment is more about sex or power, but it's not really about discrimination on the basis of uh, one's, one's sex. It's more about sexual desire. But the court recognized it. Um, I mentioned Price Waterhouse. And then the, the final one is, uh, I think it's pronounced actually An-Kal, uh Ancal. But I've always called it Ankali. But
1: you're right. It is Ancalli. I learned that from Scott Ballinger, who worked on the case. Is this Yes.
0: Because I looked up today, and there's this actual website that if you can click the audio and it pronounces it. But I'll take Scott Ballinger over a computer. Um, but it's called Supreme Court pronunciation. OK, on Collie, Um in this case, recognized same-sex harassment as a cause of action. Um, some men were harassing a, um, a man on a uh, oil rig, uh, apparently because he was they either thought he was gay or effeminate. And the court said we don't really need to get into his sexual orientation, but he is being, if it's because a woman who, would be, who was effeminate would, would have been left alone, but because he's a man, uh, it's still discrimination on the basis of sex. And uh, part of why it's cited a lot is uh, Justice Scalia wrote that um, even if male on male harassment was not within the uh, purpose of Congress in 1964, it's the provisions of our statute, not the, their principle. Uh, the principal problem they're trying to address that that we're governed by. So he's saying it's text trumps uh, sort of purpose or anticipated application. Okay, uh, those are the two uh, sexual orientation cases. I can be uh, briefer with the transgender case, in part because a lot of the arguments are um, similar. This is Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC. um, Out of Michigan, uh, a funeral home. uh, Terminated Amy Stevens, who had served as the funeral director for six years, under, uh, presenting as a male under the name Anthony Stevens. When uh, she told uh, her boss that after vacation she was going to become, uh, she was going to present as a woman, uh, he terminated her um, um, based on his, uh, he says, his religious beliefs. Uh, so, um, So her claim is that discrimination on the basis of uh, gender identity is also sex discrimination. And the EEOC um, brought the case. I think she's now intervened as a a party, in part because the EEOC now is kind of left hanging because the the Justice Department now, which represents the EEOC before the Supreme Court, has switched positions. The EEOC was ruling in the employee's favor, but now under um, the Trump administration, the Justice Department is is ruling in the, is taking the employer side, so um, so she has intervened as a party to adequately represent her interests. Uh, and here, you know, the employer's arguments are, are very similar. Congressional intent wasn't about gender, gender identity, that, uh, similar to the um, sexual orientation. One additional point that the employer uh, argues in this case is uh, there are a line of cases, notwithstanding Price Water. House versus Hopkins that do allow uh, different dress and groom standards to be imposed on male and female employees. They can't be too burdensome on one sex or the other or too degrading. Um, But they have upheld, for example, the Ninth Circuit upheld uh, imposing um, where women have to wear makeup and jewelry and men have to be clean-shaven and not wear makeup. And um, and, and there's some split among circuit courts Uh, on that issue, but several have upheld these dress and grooming differences, um, notwithstanding Title VII. Uh, And notwithstanding that no court would probably allow different dress uh, requirements based on race, even though the statutory language is the same. So there's kind of this carve out. And the funeral home director said, well, she said she's going to start coming to work dressed as a woman. And he actually did have a clothing policy that meant men have to wear pantsuits, women have to wear skirt suits. And so the employer said that that's violating dress and groom standard. That was in the question presented. The Supreme Court made the question more general, whether transgender identity is protected um, under Title VII. So it's not clear how much that, that argument will actually uh, play out um, in the case. And then the employee's arguments are also similar, but I think in some ways more straightforward. It's Because in some sense, it's just, of course, this is about sex. Um, the employer actually said he said he's going to start coming to work dressed as a woman. So he's he's saying that a man cannot come to work presenting like a woman. If she were a woman coming to work presenting as a woman, uh, that would be fine. So it's really kind of straightforward, and it really doesn't matter uh, analytically whether you take his position or her position as to whether she's a man uh, uh, or a woman. His position is he's saying she's a, he, he's he's saying it's a man. and I won't allow a man to dress like my women employees. So that's sex discrimination, because he would allow the women to. And she says, I'm a woman. uh, So by her argument, um, if I were assigned a female sex at birth, you would be okay with me presenting as a woman. But because I was assigned a male sex at birth, you're not. So again, it it still distinguishes in some ways because of my sex. And then there's also that's comparative. There's also the the stereotype argument that you know um, a real man is always a man um, and will always present as a man. So that argument is fairly similar. So some concluding observations. Uh, I think there's a kind of challenge that this case presents for both conservatives uh, and uh, liberals. For conservatives. who typically believe in stricter adherence to text and more formalist approaches? Uh, this case is tending to re- reach results that um, are inconsistent with with many of their um, policy perspectives. Uh, so, you know, notwithstanding their argument about public <coughs> meaning of the text, there really is a pretty strong textual argument to cover sex, uh, to cover sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, This is including um, that uh, textualists and originalists in the last decades have made a concerted point of saying, it's not about the intent behind the legal the drafters of the law. It's what the public meaning of the law is. And that's actually what the lower courts have relied on as well. The the formalists below that have ruled in the employer's favor, they say it turns on the public meaning, uh, what it would be understood to a reasonable observer. Uh, but that actually means that the question isn't whether Congress was anticipating this. Uh, uh, originalists today say it's not about expected applications. It's about what's the meaning of the term, the semantic or linguistic meaning in the statute or constitution. And that may have applications that the drafters actually don't agree with. So one example is Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, there's Many originalists will, will acknowledge that the framers of the 14th Amendment in 1868 thought that would have thought that separate schools for black and white would be consistent with equality. Uh, and uh, so expected application would allow for separate but equal schools. But uh, many originalists say, nonetheless, originalism supports Brown versus Board of Education because the meaning of equality is such that uh, the consistent pattern of the way separate but equal was uh, implemented was always to the disadvantage of blacks and part of a system of subordinating blacks. So we've learned, in a sense, that um, um, the term, as was understood even then, what does equality mean, um, ultimately required eliminating separate but equal schools, even if the people at the time thought that would be consistent with uh, according true equality to, to black people. So um, in this case, if you look at dictionaries of sex in 1964 and dictionaries of sex today, it's basically the same. So the meaning really hasn't changed. Uh, it's that we can think more analytically about the ways in which sexual orientation and sex uh, inherently relate to one another in ways that wasn't uh, understood then. But the, the semantic meaning is, is still there. So many of their arguments are actually, um, in some ways, more functionalist. Well, what did people expect? What was their purpose? Uh, And in fact, I think the case that I also didn't see cited in the cases below, but I think actually might support them, is a (coughs) decidedly non-functional case, which is uh, United Steelworkers of America versus Weber, a 1979 case in which a liberal Supreme Court allowed affirmative action under Title VII, even though uh, a formalist interpretation of Title VII to say, Look, the text is clear. It says it's illegal to discriminate because of race. And unlike sex, which has certain exceptions, there are no exceptions for race. So affirmative action is discrimination by race, which it is. And Title VII doesn't allow it. And the court you know, literally said um, something may violate the letter of the law, but not the spirit. So it was saying the spirit trumps the letter of the law. I mean, a formalist should be uh, quite disturbed by that. But in some ways, that's tempting to um, sort of social conservatives in this context, because it's, it's more looking to kind of the purpose, the spirit of Title VII, which was about discrimination primarily against women, than uh, discrimination uh, against gay males and lesbians. Um, for liberals, you kind of have the converse challenge, which is they're now hypertextualists and saying, you know, we've got to go with the text and not what the purpose was. and, um, and That may get them what they want in this case, but uh, to what extent is that consistent with uh, how they want statutes to be interpreted? Because often, text doesn't allow for reaching unforeseen challenges that liberals often would prefer a more functional approach that can reach uh, to address. Uh, And in some ways, I think it reveals a certain, for me at least, inadequacy or unsatisfying account uh, or nature of formalism. Formalism can have certain value. uh, Formalism meaning more adhering to text and and dealing in kind of categories. Uh, It can provide clarity and precision and predictability. I think that can be especially uh, good for statutes, which can be amended if there are more unforeseen circumstances that come along, whereas I think constitutions lend themselves more properly to evolving interpretation. uh, at least in anti-discrimination law, which is an area I'm, I'm more familiar with, you see ways in which formalism does lead to, in a sense, ill-fitting uh, interpretations and statutes. So, you know, with constitutional law and then the enactment of Title VII as well, they were both responding to social problems that um, had certain particularities. They were disc- social problem pro- initially of discrimination against African Americans. Uh, and then later, discrimination against women, and the legislative history of the statutes and the Supreme Court cases that constitutionalized heightened protection for race and sex uh, both relied on the subordination of those groups, blacks and women, as the justification for the statutes for the and the, the justification for uh, heightened protection under the constitution uh, but then formalists have interpreted those. Uh, the statutes and formalists in Congress, I suppose, by um, applying very general kind of language rather than focused on the particular problem has led then to whites being protected, uh, males being protected. And certainly, there's important cases where they should be. But um, but certainly, from a constitutional standpoint, the argument that uh, the Constitution protects um, whites and men, but not disabled people or older people or people with mental illness, when those groups are clearly more vulnerable in the political process, I think is in some sense turned the justification for heightened protection uh, on its head. But it's a product in part of formalism, trying to kind of rely on consistency and symmetry in ways where the social problems don't actually reflect those qualities. Uh, And then in this case. Uh, I think the formalist approach is one that would say gender identity and sexual orientation are protected. And from a policy perspective, I think that's a good thing. But, um, but there is still something unsatisfactory about it, uh, to me at least. Uh, my preference would be that Congress would have already, and if not, would do so as soon as possible, add sexual orientation and gender identity to the statutes as have many states. Uh, because as, as a social problem, as a way we think about these problems, as a way we discuss them, as a way we think about them, really do think of sexual orientation, discrimination, um, uh, and to some degree, gender identity, even though I think that's closer to sex discrimination, differently than when we're talking about sex discrimination. When someone's been discriminated against because they're gay, they usually don't say, I got fired because I'm a man. They'll say, I got fired because I was gay. Uh, and I think in some ways, Uh, formalism is what they have to rely on, but it reaches a result that, uh, to some degree, is inadequate. Thank you very much. Uh,
1: So I want to say how pleased I've been to uh, work in employment discrimination law uh, with Kim. And I'm very grateful for his uh, close analysis of these cases. I'm going to take a much more abstract view. Um, as he said, especially towards the end of his talk, um, the argument in these cases turns a lot on formalism, by which I mean exactly what the text of Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 says. Formalism can also be used as a term of abuse um, as formalist as opposed to realistic. But let's put that sense to one side. Now, when you have a formalist argument, there are problems of fit that inevitably arise, and Kim has alluded to those. Um, So one problem of fit is that there are only a few people in the country who really care about statutory interpretation. As you know, Are we going to take a formalist, a functionalist, a purposivist approach? The politics, especially on this issue, is very different. So the groups that are most opposed to a broader reading of Title VII are religious groups. In the related area of discrimination in schools that receive federal funding. Some parents groups are uh, concerned about coverage of transgender individuals and the fact that people who present as members of one sex, or did, are now using bathrooms and locker rooms for members of another sex. That's the politics of this issue. It, it has to do, in Title Seven with religious groups and religious employers. It has to do in um, in education with uh, the concerns of parents. Uh, that has nothing whatsoever to do with exactly what method of statutory interpretation one adopts. The, the second feature of the formalist argument is that it has been around for a long time. I know, <laughs> the very first time I taught employment discrimination, I found the articles on this subject by Richard Wasserstrom, who was then a professor at UCLA. He made exactly these arguments. If we take sex discrimination as seriously as we take race discrimination, we are going to have to be much more permissive to people who have different sexual orientations. We're going to have to desegregate bathrooms on the basis of sex just as we desegregated them on the basis of race. This argument has been around for approximately 50 years. That leaves us with the question, why did it suddenly become persuasive in the last decade? And I think there are two answers to that question. One is the landscape of constitutional law changed dramatically. So that uh, gays from being a uh, criminalized group in this country gained constitutional protection and the equal right to marriage. Everyone who studies employment discrimination law comes away with the conclusion that what happens in constitutional law is very important for our subject, even though our subject is mainly a statutory subject. There has been a sea change in constitutional law. The second point, which is related to the first, is that Why didn't Congress uh, protect uh, gays and transsexual people in 1964? None of them were coming out of the closet then. It was illegal. And very few, uh, even if transsexuality itself was not prohibited, my sense is that it was not nearly as prevalent or as publicly acknowledged as it has been in the last decade. So Congress didn't address the issue because it wasn't an issue. Uh, it's not that you know Congress would have prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or uh, sexual identity. The issue just never came up. And that's a perfectly good explanation of why it took sex in a direction, it understood it in a direction that is really quite outmoded by our standards. If you doubt me about this, and you might, go back and read the debates over putting sex into Title VII. <laughs> they are the most sexist, you know, condescending arguments that male lawmakers could make on that occasion. Uh, so Congress didn't think that seriously about the implications of what it has done, and the issue just didn't come up. So I am persuaded by the formalist argument, but I have to acknowledge, it is going to raise a lot of political hassles. All of the statutes, both state, local, and the federal proposed legislation, create large exceptions for religious institutions. So those statutes which protect gays, lesbians, transgender people all say we're not going to force this down the throats of religious institutions. They get a very broad exception. So what we can expect if the Supreme Court rules in favor of a broad interpretation of Title VII is language acknowledging the need for broader interpretation of the exceptions in Title VII. Those are principally for bona fide occupational qualifications on the basis of sex. You can anticipate that it will receive a much broader interpretation. Alternatively, if the court rules against a broad interpretation of Title VII, we can expect more legislative pressure to enact uh, an amendment to Title VII. It goes under the name now as the Equality Act, Um, and it almost passed. It, It made it through the House, but it didn't make it through the Senate in 2008. And notwithstanding the dysfunction as characteristic of Congress in the last few years, there will be, I think, enhanced political pressure to uh, respond to the Supreme Court's holding. Uh, I myself would prefer that the pressure come in the opposite direction, that the court adopt a broad interpretation and leave it to Congress to legislate exceptions, which I think they would relatively uh, quickly take up. So that leads me to my last point, which is perhaps something you've figured out yourself. The vote is going to be close. <laughs> I think the, the proponents of a broad interpretation of Title VII can count on four votes. You can figure out who they are. I think the religious groups can count on at least three votes, and I don't know who, where the justices in the middle are Uh, are likely to end up. There are all kinds of considerations that might come into play uh, as they make up their minds. First, they have still uh, a growing list of controversies about separation of powers, and they don't want to portray themselves as simply the lackeys of the Trump administration. Um, but they might, in the end, as they have in uh, all the cases challenging Trump's uh, presidential powers, they might well, in the end, uh, rule for him. Um, the second point uh, that comes into play is that the abortion decisions are yet again up for reconsideration by the Supreme Court. Somewhat ironically, a ruling in favor of a broad interpretation of Title VII would make the court look much more impartial if it continued as it might well to cut back on Roe against Wade. Those I think are the practical considerations. Notice that those two are completely independent of the formal argument which raises just a lot of issues about at what level should we look to you know, predictive judgments about what the court does and its political impact. So thank you. I, we look forward to your questions. You might look forward to lunch. <laughs>